This morning, I will be reading 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 1 through 11, 20 through 26, 31 through 37, and 42 through 52. Now the Philistines gathered the armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sokah, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sokah and Azekah and Nephesdamon. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And they came out from the camp of the Philistines, a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for the battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and Oz and Israel heard all these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And he talked with them. Behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. 
Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. And when the Philistines looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistines said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistines said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beast of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistine this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beast of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistines arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath. He killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharem as far as Gath and Ekron. Well, it's quite a story. I think um, when I think of David and Goliath, I think it, it should win a lot of awards. One award would be, of course, the longest story in the Bible. Thank you for reading that, Gene. Uh, another one would be that it's probably the most well-known outside of Christian circles. It's probably the most well-known story. It could be also the most well-loved, particularly by children. I know my grandchildren absolutely love this story. Um, but it also may be the most misunderstood story in the Bible. It's um, two errors we want to avoid when you come to an Old Testament story like this. One error would be that we make it into a moral teaching where we just try to draw a lesson out of it. So for example, um, if you're an underdog, you know, you turn to the story and here's your encouragement and hope to defeat the odds that may be overwhelming. Kind of a be like David and fight your giants. In other words, you know, David kind of prevailed by digging down deep and having enough faith, and, and you can overcome your giants as well. Kind of like a karate kid in Israel or, you know, some sort of rocky Balboa on the Valley of Elah. Uh, so that, that's one way. And, and in this way, you become David. And, and the Goliath is whatever opposition you have at the time, whether it would be 
a bad health or bad job or bad life, whatever, that becomes your Goliath. So that, that's, that's one way we want to avoid. The other way is more of, a, of an allegory. You look at it and you try to draw uh, specific meaning out of certain parts of the passage. So the five smooth stones, what are they? Well, you've got to have something with five, so it's, it's tulip, it's Calvinism. Maybe that's it. Or, or maybe it's, uh, it's prayer and, and Bible study and evangelism. And, those, and so if you have a good devotional life, you can knock down any giant. Um, one person I read said that the reason Saul, or the reason that David didn't want Saul's armor is because you need to be yourself and you don't want to use things of other people or identify. That may be a wonderful point to teach. You won't find it in that scripture. And so we want to avoid those two ways of looking at some Old Testament stories. And the reason is, number one, it tends to make the Bible about me first rather than God. And, and secondly, it doesn't work. What happens when you run out of stones and your giants are still standing? I mean, people do work through continuing struggles in life. And if you have these five stones, which are a great devotional life, and so you have a great devotional life and you have remaining giants in your life, what do you do then? Well, God seems as if he's too weak. So, so towards the end, we'll get to the heart of the story. But I want to explain the story to you in three movements. It's like a play. It's like a, it, it's like a storyline. The first movement is 1 to 11. And you're going to see kind of Goliath against Saul. That's a picture. And then the next movement is going to be Saul and David. They have this interaction between the two. And then you have David and Goliath, which is what we normally turn to. But I don't want to get there just yet. I want to move there. So the first scene, you're with me. We're in the valley of Eli or Soka. It's a mile long. You can go there today. The mountains are there. And you have both armies on opposing sides within sight of each other, right? Now, this would be more of a representational war. So they send their champion, you send your champion, and whoever wins takes the spoil. That's the idea, right? Now, you can tell that the writer spent a lot of time giving us the detail of Goliath. He wants you to feel the weight. He wants the tension to be rising in your soul over the nature of this man. When you look at Goliath, you, you see his size, and you see his armor, and you see his attitude. They're all pretty significant. I mean, intimidating would not be a word I would use. So, so he's six cubits in a span. So that could be nine feet, six inches. That possible. There are people that have been nine feet tall before. The Greek Old Testament records it as six nine. I, we don't know how to resolve the scribal error. But given the fact that the average Hebrew man was about five feet, three inches, either one would be significantly taller than them. But there's more than just his height. There's a strength. All that bronze that you read about, I mean, it's about 125 pounds. It's a lot of weight to carry going into battle. But not just his size and strength. Did you notice how often bronze, a bronze helmet, he had this bronze kind of coat of mail, and it was layered. It was, the Hebrew word is for scale. It was like these little scales. He looked like a reptile, scale upon scale upon scale, kind of held together by leather. So it would have been like this, this protective over his chest, but also bronze leg plates. So, I mean, the guy is, he is heavily bronze. And what's interesting is the Philistine army, was technologically advanced in their military hardware. Most other nations couldn't use metal. They had wood and they had, they had stone, but they didn't have metal. 
So here he is, this bronze machine coming out. Can you imagine? You put him out there on the noonday sun, reflecting off his armor, and that would be an imposing force. He was a technological wonder. He was like a battle tank. And then he had an attitude. So for, 30, for 40 days, he's going out every morning, every evening, blaspheming God, blaspheming Saul, blaspheming the people of Israel. So, so that's kind of same. What would you do? You're a soldier there, let's say. I mean, it would be a terrifying, and you've got to go against him, and you've got to win. Well, of course, the question is, what about the other side? Who's their representative? Who's Israel's champion? Nobody's coming forward. I mean, shouldn't it be Saul? I mean, Saul was the king. By the way, he was a head taller than all the others, and he had armor, and he had experience, but he wasn't going out there. But he was the king. He was supposed to protect and lead and defend the people. You remember back in 1 Samuel 8, they said, give us a king like the nations so that we might have a king who goes out and fight our battles. Well, here's the doozy right here. But there's no Saul. What do we find of Saul? He's scared. He's in dismay. So that's scene one. You have Goliath and Saul, and Saul's terrified. He's a perfect picture of how faithlessness leads to fear. You know, when you look at the text, all 11 verses, there is no mention of God. Nobody's speaking of God. Nobody's appealing to God. Nobody's running to God. God is not part of the equation. It's just metal against metal. It's battle against battle. That's what it is. You know, when you remove the vertical in life, life gets scary. When you try to live this life apart from the knowledge of a sovereign good God, it of course is going to be scary. There are uncertainties, there are issues in front of you that you cannot handle, you cannot control, you cannot tweak. And it's natural, apart from God, that you will fear. If you're not a Christian here, this is why you fear the future. This is why you fear what you don't know. You have no armaments, or you don't even know what you may be facing. That's why in David, David said in Psalm 42, he says, why so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. In other words, to the one who is downcast, to the one who is in fear, put hope in God. With God, everything changes. But Saul is a picture of a man without faith. It's a picture of a man without God. It's a picture of a man who's trying to live a life apart from God. And what is the result in attitude? It's going to be fear. It's going to be dismay. Because this life is too precarious. You read the paper, you know shocking things happen every day. But what Saul forgot was God. You know, back in 1 Samuel chapter 2, remember Hannah is Samuel's mother. Samuel was the judge that anointed David. And, and Hannah wrote this prayer about the king back in chapter 2. Here's what she wrote. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in my salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set his world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. 
and exalt the horn of his anointed. Do you see? Saul didn't believe this. He didn't believe it. If he believed it, he would know that might is not the way a man shall prevail. He failed to believe in God. I wonder if God is as offended as Goliath's blasphemy as he is by the disbelief of his own people. You know, when we walk in disbelief, how does God view that? I mean, I wonder if it's as offensive to him. Okay, so that's scene one. So we got the scene. Hopefully, you're on edge of your seat. Your nerves are up. Anxiety's rising. And that's, what, that's what's happening. The writer is trying to, because in verse 12, we meet David. David arrives on the scene. Now, David comes at the request of his father, bringing bread and cheeses, right? So consider David for a minute. He's bringing bread and cheeses. He's been appointed by God. He's been anointed by Samuel. He's the king of Israel, and he's a pizza delivery man. That's what he's doing. He's bringing pizzas. He's bringing pizzas to the guys, and let's pat off the, the guys' commanders a little bit to make them happy. He's bringing pizzas, delivering, and nobody knows what deliverance he's going to bring. Because when he goes down, he, he drops the stuff off with the handlers, and he goes down to the ranks where the troops are along the valley floor, and he goes to check on his brothers. And it's then that, of course, Goliath comes out from the other side, and he begins his taunting regimen. That's what he's been doing, right? He's starting to throw God under the bus, throw Saul under the bus. Now, remember, he's done this for 40 days. Israel has not uttered a word. Day after day, God is being maligned and blasphemed. No one's speaking. It's been silent. But then David arrives, and look at 23. Because in 23 it says, and he heard him. David heard him. David's ears, this is like lighting a fuse to a stick of dynamite now. David heard him, and look what he said. He said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that should defy the armies of the living God. This is the first time David's words are recorded in Scripture. First time he's spoken all in Scripture. And it's the first time that God is even mentioned in this passage. So David brings God, and he's beginning to look through the crises theologically. The others, God wasn't a part of the crises. We're just in fear of what's in front of us. David brings God into the picture. He's not worried about the battlemen. He's not worried about the fight ahead. He's not worried about Goliath. He's thinking about God and God's honor alone. I mean, th this is when Goliath woke up a sleeping giant here. He woke up a sleeping giant because you see him begin to take up the name of God. He's acting like a true king. In fact, he goes, you know, his words of confidence in an army of absolute fear quickly went up the ladder to Saul. Saul calls him to himself. And, and David offers himself. He says this, he says, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. I mean, David is offering himself to Saul. And the Saul says, no way. I mean, he was fighting before you were born. You have no experience. You have no stature. You have no power. Look what David says. David says, your servant. Note the respect of the Lord's anointed. Your servant has faced and struck down both bear and lion, and this uncircumcised Philistine has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from this Philistine. What David's doing is David isn't trying to bolster up his resume as to why we should now believe David's going to do it. Well, he took down a lion, he took down a bear. He's not trying to do that. 
He's not trying to say by my cunning and agility and my, my prowess I did these things. So have trust in me and, and go send me out. He's not doing that. He simply refers to God's past mercies. The Lord who delivered me. David knows the mercies of God. And in David's mind, he's thinking, if God has delivered me, if God has proved his faithfulness to me in the past, I can go forward. Because it's the Lord's battle. That's why he doesn't want the armor. He doesn't want to be a little Goliath. He doesn't want to fight the battles of the world with the battles with the armaments of the world. He says it's the Lord's battle. Do you see the crossover? Do you see the role reversal here? Do you see that David's the king? That Saul may have the title and he may have the crown. He's ambivalent to the name of God. He's protecting himself. In fact, scholars will say that the reason Saul wanted to give his armor to David was because if David, by some crazy chance, won, some of the credit and some of the glory might go back to Saul. That was the kind of man he was. But you see, David, David is offering his life for the people. David is going into battle for the people. David is entrusting himself to God, and he's saying, I will be the representative. I will go forth for the people. And notice what Saul says. I love the ironies in Scripture. You know, people say things. They don't understand the full import, but it's much greater than they understand. Saul, Saul says, may the Lord be with you. Saul abdicated the throne on that day because he submitted to David to be the representative of Israel. So you see Saul as a picture of faithlessness, and now you see David as a picture of faith. But what I want you to see faith is, is faith is a trust in God that is rooted in past mercies. In other words, holding on to the prior works of God in life provide for you the courage to look at the uncertainties of the future. You cannot maintain a proper perspective over the struggles of this life apart from knowing that God has been faithful to us. He is faithful to save. He's powerful to save. We don't look outwardly. We look backwardly. Has God done a work in our souls? You know, I, I think about when Carol, uh, my wife Carol and I, before going overseas in missions, uh, she kept this journal of all the things that God had done to get us from me being a lost CPA to wanting to sell everything and go overseas. There's a lot of uncertainties to that. And, and it was a fearsome event. She would write down all the things that God did to provide for us evidence that he's trustworthy, that we can walk into the future of uncertainty with a confidence that comes. Not that everything's going to work out well, because it didn't, but that God will be there, and that God will sustain us, and that God will enable us. You know, in fact, when I was just came back off sabbatical, part of the time that we were away, Carol wrote down uh, a book. She wanted to write a book for our children over all the things that God has done through our life. And so it's about 15 chapters long at this point, not a traditional chapter, but the high water marks of all that God has done, drawing us out of darkness, taking us through difficult spots in marriage, moving through life, and all the things that God has done for us. We want to give it to our kids as a reminder to them, this is the God, you can trust this God. This God's faithful. Look at how he has moved through the life of the people that raised you. So now you can go forward with your own uncertainties, trust in God that he is faithful. Do you know your own history? Do you know how God has moved in your life? I mean, do you know how God has saved you? Do you know how God is saving you? 
If you don't, you're going to struggle with disbelief as you go forward. You're going to be, I'm a Christian, but you have trouble mustering faith with the uncertainties before you. Know your history. Write it down. Make note of how God has not just saved you in a converting sense, but how he has been sanctifying you all these years since you've been saved. So we have this faithlessness of Saul. We have the faith of David. Okay, let's get to the fancy chapter. This is the big one, the, the scene, the third scene here, the third movement in our story. When David goes walking out. Now, David's a teenager. He's probably, I don't know, five feet tall, five feet, two inches tall. But he's probably a teenager. And he goes out there with a stick or a staff and he picks up five stones. Now, why five and not, you know, my Hebrew professor used to say, we probably would have picked six if he could fit them all in the pouch, but he put what he could carry, and that was five stones. And he grabbed his sling. Now, he goes out there. Now, you've got to imagine, I mean, the troops in Israel were thinking, we're toast. I mean, this guy's got stones. He's a battle tank. We don't stand a chance. We're going to be making Philistine stew forever at the end of this thing. And Goliath thought so as well. Can't you believe Goliath would have been laughing? I, you know he would have been laughing. I mean, I mean, you've been laughing at this kid coming out. And then he'd start laughing. And guess what? All the troops of the Philistines, what would they be doing? They'd be smacking their shields. They'd be laughing. Trash talking didn't start with the MPA. I mean, it was back then. They were just having a field day with David. You know that you know they would. And, and, and so he begins to say to David, you come out here with sticks as if I'm a dog? And then he begins not just mocking him, but he begins bringing down the curses of the Philistine gods on him. And then he says, and I, 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 you know, we're so polished in today's world. He said, I'm going to take your flesh and I'm going to feed it to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. I mean, this is real stuff. This isn't, you know, we have the rule, don't kick a guy when he's down. They didn't have that rule. They're going to tear you to pieces. Well, that was a mistake. Because David then moves. And, and David, I mean, when David, the bulk of this last scene is not in the event of him killing Goliath. It's in the words that he spoke. 63 verses were given to his speech to Goliath, whereas only 36 were given to the actual event itself. What does the writer want us to know? Don't worry about the giant. Listen to what he's saying. And here's what he said. You've come to me with sword and spear and javelin. I've come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, who you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down, and I'll cut off your head. I mean, th th this isn't just let's reach a stalemate here. I'll give the dead bodies of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field that all may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear. That was for Saul, by the way, and that was for all the Israeli troops. He's saying that this assembly, that is the church behind me, the people of God, that they may know that the Lord saves, not with sword or spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into my hand. And so, of course, the story, as we read, Goliath gets up. He begins moving slowly because he's carrying a couple hundred pounds of steel. And then David, though, it says, ran quickly. He ran at him, grabbed a stone, slung it. Of course, hit him in the forehead. We don't know that he died from the stone, but we know that he died at least from the sword. He took out his own sword. This, was, this, was, this is what God does. God judges the sinner with his own sin. He takes a sword out of Goliath's sheath and cuts off his head. 
What's happening here? David is the king of Israel. And he's acting as the king because he's bringing God's divine judgment upon blasphemous people. People that are opposing God, David is acting as if God himself were bringing judgment upon, the Goli- upon Goliath and all the, Philistine- all the Philistines. And you know that their bodies were littered across the floor of the valley all the way to Gath. That's the story. Incredible. One man against this giant. But what's the point of it? What are you supposed to walk away with? To seize up your giants and get some stones and figure? I'd say that, that isn't it at all. Let me, I'm going to probably blow all of your Sunday school classes that you had and your VBSs and stuff. But let me give you some observations from this text I think that you can walk away with. Number one would be this. That God delivers through the weak for his glory. God delivers through the weak for his glory. Listen, he chose David. David was a no-name from a, no, uh, from a, a no-name family. He was inexperienced. He was small. He was young. He had never seen the rigors of this kind of life. And he uses him. Why? Because God wants to remove confusion from any of our minds as to who's doing the real work, that it's God who does the deliverance. And God's done this throughout history. When you do kind of a quick biblical theology of, of think about, uh, think about Moses. He stands before Pharaoh with what? Uh, legions of men? No, with a staff. Or Joshua stands before the walls of Jericho with what? A cannon? No, a voice, because they're just going to shout and the walls are going to come down. Gideon. Gideon stands before the Midianite army, as numerous as sand is on the seashore. What's he got? 300 men and a bunch of candles. That's all he has. David. You have David with a sling before a professional warrior. God loves to use the weak to display his glory to the world. He does not use the instruments of human power to accomplish his great work. You see this clearly in the cross of Christ. I mean, God wants to redeem the world. So what does he do? He sends a son in the weakness of human flesh. Jesus didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself, becoming a servant, becoming a man, humbling himself to the point of death. God brought forth Christ in our flesh, to die for our sins, to bear the wrath of God. What humiliation that led to what exaltation? That's the way God does it. It's amazing how God would do. Who would make up that story? I mean, we have plenty of Greek and Roman mythology that shows great power, just in the way that we would design it from a human point of view. Not so God. God does it in a different way. He does it with such irony that you can't miss it. So what's the story here? Well, don't be strong like David. Be weak like David. I mean, God loves to use the weak. I mean, think about what Paul said. You know, Paul, the great apostle, he says, but he said to me, remember the thorn in the flesh? By the way, that giant didn't fall down ever. But guess what happened? He lived with the giant, overcame the giant this way. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Can we say that? Can he, can he really be so strong that in that kind of weakness, we would then be strong? He says, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. 
if, if you're confident in yourself, you're, you're assured, you feel like you've moved a long way in the faith, and you feel like you've really kind of arrived, you've got a lot of gifts, people have encouraged you in a lot of ways, I would just say take caution. Take caution. I mean, God uses the weak. He uses the weak to do his purposes. If you're here and you're thinking, well, I'm not as spiritually aware as this person. I'm not as smart as this person. I'm not as pretty or thin. I, I, I could never do that. You know, if, if those kind of words have come out of your mouth, ask God what to do. He may have something for you. He loves to use the weak. I mean, th- this is good news for us. There are so many things that God may be leading. I, I don't know what God's been saying to you in terms of where he may be drawing you or how many times you have failed to step forward because I couldn't do that. How many times have you said that in the things? I couldn't share that word with that person. I couldn't handle that situation. I can't, I can't go up and speak with them. I, I, I can't respond to that. How many times have you said, I can't do it? And, and, and that's fine, and you may be actually right, but he can. And I think the point of this is that God delivers through the weak to bring glory to his name. So that's the first thing. The second thing I would say to you is that God's deliverance here is pointing to a greater deliverance. Listen, the whole story of the Bible is around this idea of salvation, right? So you have Adam and Eve. They want to do things their own way. God moves them out of the garden, and boom, they're separated from God, right? And God promises that through this woman, a a son will come and crush the head of the serpent. So the whole story of the Bible is how does God bring us back into harmony with him? How does God reconcile the world to himself? How does God redeem what we have destroyed? Well, that's the story of the Bible, right? That he's going to send this son and this son will crush the head. Well, as you go through the Bible, you just have story after story of redemption. There are all these incremental movements to the fulfillment, right? So you have Moses leading the people out. You have Noah, right? Noah's an act of deliverance. Moses is an act of deliverance. Joshua, as I said, Gideon's an act of deliverance. Well, here, this is an act of deliverance. It's one more chapter in a story that God has written on how he's going to save us. But what I want you to see in this story is it's a shadow of a real deliverance. He had more battles to fight. You keep reading in 1 Samuel, he's got plenty of battles to fight. it's, It's a historical event, no doubt but it's not ultimate. Jesus Christ, the greatest son of David, came to bring about the ultimate victory. Uh, Think about it for a minute. Here's David from Bethlehem, sent by his father, who would save his people. Does that sound sound like anybody you know? From Bethlehem, sent by the father to save his people? I mean, Jesus Christ, we're to see David as a lens through which we look to Christ. Because what Christ has delivered us from is not just some goon in a bunch of brass. What what Jesus Christ has delivered us from is sin and death. I mean, that is the problem behind all your problems. I mean, you can put all your problems in a bucket and just write sin and alienation from God. That is why we are as fractured and struggle as we do. But Jesus Christ has come from the Father to reconcile us, to put death to death in his death, that we might live forever. I mean, Jesus Christ has come, and he hasn't defeated the enemy as David. He's laid down his life. Our sins have been cast upon him. The wrath of God that we justly deserved 
He bore for us as our substitute, as our representative, as our king. He was a true king for us because he laid down his life for us. And now through faith, now we have a hope in this life. Apart from Christ, there is no way you will see your problems removed ever. So when you look at the passage, again, David's not our hero. It's Christ is our hero. He's the one that's done the work to redeem. He's done the work that has killed the true Goliath, which is sin and death and alienation from God. Now, I will say this to you, that if you're a Christian here and you have faith in this conquering king, then you can have courage. You know, if you get the doctor and next week you hear that you have cancer and it's stage four, like John McCain just hears this news, a glioblastoma, you get that news, guess what? He's taken the sting out of death. We just sang about it. If you get the news that you've lost your job, you have the promise that this king said, you don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. Your heavenly father knows you need these things. You just take it easy. Let me be God. Doesn't mean we don't do anything, but we don't worry about anything. Or if you have a, a relational meltdown and your, your relational world is, it, it's a dumpster fire right now. You know what? He is able to comfort those who need comfort. He, he is able to help the weak. He's able to strengthen those that are broken down right now. Turn to him. Flee to him as Daniel prayed. Fly to him for grace and salvation. We can have great courage. But, but our giants may be out there, but that's all right, because we have a king who's slain the greatest giant. Okay, the, the third point I would make to you from this lesson is that God's deliverance is for the purpose of advancing his own name, of making his name known. Look what, look what David says. It's so remarkable. He says, I'm going to take your flesh and feed it to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field so that the earth may know there's a God in Israel. David's a missionary. David is going forth, seeing God deliver, so that through this act of deliverance, the world will come to understand that all the false gods you've been worshiping, they're nothing. This is the one true God. The Spirit of God had rushed upon David in chapter 16, 13, assures him the presence of God, and he goes forth to, to declare that God's mighty. Now, when you come to us at the church, is that not our charge? Are we not called to make God known? Has he not given us the spirit, just like David? Yes, he did, the same spirit in fullness. And has he not assured his presence with us? Matthew 28, go into all the world, right? Baptizing and teaching, and lo, I'll be with you always. We have the same spirit and the same presence. So we rejoice with Stephen Christie being back with us because they've done that. In a global sense, they've gone to make his name known in East Asia. We pray for more of you to do that. I mean, I'll tell you right now, I love you all, but I want some to go. I, I want some to feel that urge. I want to make his name known in a global context. We have a team going in September. We're looking to, to fill that team up. I would ask you to consider those things. How do we make his name known? Well, we go and we declare this great act of deliverance. We don't simply tell them about the story of David and Goliath. We tell them about the story of Christ and putting death to death in his death. That's what we proclaim, not just globally, but locally as well. So how is he being made known in your life right now? What has to change in your life that people would know you value and you adore him? It may be walking with greater integrity in the office, that when the bottom line is profit, you say, no, the bottom line is my integrity. I, I can't do those things to advance this, this fact to get this truth. 
Maybe the bottom line is that you're a student and, and you know, the, the um, academic environments are somewhat opposing of Christianity in many contexts. Maybe it's you just saying, you know what, by the Spirit of God, I'm going to stand up for what I believe. And, and, and you, are, you are moving in faith with trust that God, by His Spirit, will empower you. Maybe you're a mom and you're just working, laboring at home, and it's 24-7, you're exhausted. But you know what? You're going to say, no, I want to instruct my children in the things of God. You're going to make him known to your kids. So what has to change in your life to make him known? Is it something you haven't been saying regarding the nature of this gospel? Or is it something you haven't been doing? Both are important. And, and then the last thing I would just share with you regarding, I think, this, a lesson from this text is simply this, that God's deliverance shows us, reminds us, that everyone here needs a king. You need a king. I mean, you, you need a king. If you want to identify with any of the characters in the story, which I wouldn't encourage, but if you were to, I would say go ahead and choose the soldiers. You know, kind of the ones wetting their pants in fear over this monster, and, and, and I've got nothing to bring. I'm unable to save myself. And this story shows us that every one of us needs not just David to come from the ranks, but Christ to come from the ranks. We need a king. We do. I mean, all of us need a king to save us, to save us from our own sin, to save us from our own shame and our own guilt. And, you know, we need a king to keep saving us. So if you're not a Christian, this is the step into Christianity, which is faith in a king who's delivered you from sin, death, and alienation from God, that's cleansed you, forgiven you of your sins by faith, putting your faith in him, saying, you go for me, Jesus. I need you to do it. But for the Christian here, it's continuing to walk as if he were king, that you're laboring to love and serve and sacrifice. So the story is much more than just a little guy knocked a big guy down with a stone. It's about God delivering us. And this was just a small foretaste of what Christ would bring. So let's take a minute now and, and perhaps use this time to consider where you are with this king. And, uh, and I will close us in just a minute.